Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. Today's guest on the show is Jeremy Kai, founder and CEO of Italic. Italic is an online retailer on a mission to reinvent the way we shop. They currently offer hundreds of quality products ranging from clothing to cookware from the same manufacturers as top brands such as Aloe, Rag and & Bone, and Armani for up to 80% less. We had a blast getting to know Jeremy and talking about his upbringing and early career, why he started Italic and the long-term vision for the company, some of his observations growing up around manufacturing, and much more. If you want to check it out, the team at Italic was kind enough to extend a unique offer for our listeners. Get 30% off your first year of membership when you sign up at italic.com slash founder hour. Hope you enjoy. Jeremy, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. We're both huge fans of Italic and, uh, you know, members as well. Um, and uh, can't wait to kind of hear about how you started it. But before we do, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, your personal journey, personal story. Um, you know, where did you grow up? What, what were you like as a kid? What were you into? That kind of stuff. Yeah, for, first of all, th- thank you so much for, for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure and, and honor to be here. So thank you for, for the opportunity. And and uh, yeah, to, to answer your question, I, I have um, I have your tech tech background to like a stereotypical T. So I, I grew up in Chicago in a small suburb. Um, uh, my parents were first generation immigrants from from China, and uh, I, I grew up there. Went to school out in uh, in, in a small school called Babson in, in Boston, um, and then I. Yeah, from that point onwards, I followed the the, the stereotype. So I dropped out. Um, started my I moved to San Francisco. Started my first company. Did uh did did this you know accelerator called YC. Did the Teal Fellowship, which um, they basically pay you to to stay out of college, which gave me the justification to my Asian parents to, you know, to to, to stay out and and um, yeah. I love your modesty, you know, the small school no. bought that from college, you know, did this thing called YC. So let's talk about that because I went to USC and I studied kind of like the entrepreneurship, you know, kind of track there. And I remember every time, uh, you know, we would look at like the standings or people would just like would talk about it, like <laughs> Babson College is like the best entrepreneurship <laughs> school if you want to learn it. So, uh, and then YC, obviously we can talk about too, which is, you know, the the probably the most successful, you know, accelerator program, yeah. you know, in, in the world. Um, but I guess you know, when, when you were kind of before you even went to college, um, you know, what kind of stuff did you, were you into? Like, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you have any idea of like a particular career path or anything that you enjoyed? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the best way to put it is my, my, I, I grew up in a, like a, a very classically stereotypical, you know, Asian immigrant family in the Midwest, which is like deeply centered around education and, and, you know, work ethic and, and so on and so forth. But, um, uh, what happened was my, my parents, uh, my, my mom specifically started uh, a string of small businesses kind of chasing that like American dream and, um, started with like, I think it was like a cheesecake, um, a vegan cheesecake, um, uh, company, um, in Chicago, you know, like this was maybe 30, maybe like 25 or so 30 years ago. And then like, couple years after that like started another one and these there's like a string of kind of things that didn't work out but then one of them was a was a manufacturing company which um became kind of a lot of like what our family time was was associated with my dad like ended up kind of leaving his job and, and working for my mom so it's a little bit atypical for in, in that regard but that was kind of the environment i grew up in it was, it was deeply 
kind of centered around uh, like these classic, you know, uh, <laughs> American values of, of education and, and college and all this stuff. But um, at the same time, there's this whole like route of, you know, my mom was really into entrepreneurship and, and being a founder herself, although in a very different way than the way I do it um, today. And, and I think that served um, as a kind of strong backbone, actually, for, for not just what I do today, um, you know, professionally, but also like the industry that I, I work in. That was like kind of ultimately where um, the idea for Italic came around. So, um, so, so Jeremy, you talk about, you know, your parents kind of being in the manufacturing business. Um, you know, it's very similar to me, actually. My dad's on, more on the jewelry manufacturing side, and he's always, you know, been doing that. Um, and that almost involves some level of, like, artistic skill, which I definitely don't have. Uh, but when I was growing up and watching him do this and, you know, doing it both at a large scale, small scale, suffering, you know, not suffering, like going through all these ups and downs that, you know, you have in that business, but also just in manufacturing period, because you're not only competing with folks here, you're competing really with the rest of the world and labor costs, et cetera. When you were a kid, you know, did you want to be in that industry? Because I know myself, I definitely didn't, but I'm curious, like, you know, growing up around it, what were your thoughts about it? Yeah, I, I mean... Like I, 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 I totally agree with you. Manufacturing is not a good place to be. It's, uh, I mean, honestly speaking, it's, it's, it's very competitive. It's as an, as a company, like it's very competitive. It's very low margin. Um, you know, the, 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 the it's a, it's a little bit like of a tougher, you know, crowd and, and, um, and, you know, growing up, it's like definitely, you know, when you, when you visit the factories and it's like, it's really not what you want to be doing. Um, but at the same time, like, Hey, it's how, things are made and how, how the world kind of operates. So, um, and how you buy something from a store, like it, it was made somewhere, um, whether that was in the States or, or China or whatever it was. Um, so from, I guess like to your point from an earlier age, I, I definitely would agree with you. I, I definitely didn't want to be in, in that, um, that side of the business. And even when my mom was saying like, Hey, you know, do you want to kind of like one day take over the family business? I'm like, no way. And same with my sister. There's like, it's, 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 it's very much something that I think you, you like don't, most people would not see uh, the appeal of, but um, I don't know. It's a, it's a means to an end, I think. And, and it, um, it's a, it's, if you enjoy it, it's a great place to be. If not, it's, it's a very not good place to be. What were your, some of your like takeaways when you were younger from that business and something you learned about it, um, you know, that obviously has led to you, you know, kind of getting back into that space, you know, now that, you know, you kind of started your own company. Um, is there anything in particular that maybe people don't even know about manufacturing or like behind the scenes that something you learned that you realized like there's something interesting here? Um, yeah, I'd say that the two things that people, um, I would say like I probably took away myself was one, I think we had a one time where we had a quality control mishap and, um, and, uh, and my, my parents are in like auto and industrial. So it's like the thresholds of intolerances for, for, you know, error rates are very, very low relative to like, let's say, apparel or textile, where the, the thresholds are a little bit higher. Um, and uh, and for auto, like, hey, if you screw up like one component in a batch of like, uh, I don't know, a hundred thousand, like that means the whole batch you have to look through every single piece. You know, audit it. Um, and I think for 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 us, like um, that that one mishap, I think ended up costing like basically an an, an entire year's worth of revenue. So that um uh, i think like from a, <laughs> i remember that being like a very scary year for the family um and then i think um uh, at a second point i think like you also realize like what a frankly like a bad business model 
services uh, and, and having clients really is because you're so dependent on your client base that if you lose if you lose one like that means you have to there's direct costs to that you know when you're in manufacturing um, every deposit every receivable you get it goes towards payroll you know labor headcount equipment materials and if you lose one of those um, you know clients your market clients like a lot of those that headcount has to leave a lot of the equipment's not being utilized and you have to fill that pretty quickly. So I think you realize pretty quickly if, if you're in a services business, like, Hey, this can make cash flow, but like the margins typically speaking, aren't great unless you offer like a really specialized service, which manufacturing is the exact opposite of specialization where everything's a commodity for the most part, you know, especially when you talk about globalization. Um, and then I think on the flip side, um, you know, you're, you're kind of constantly at the whim of your, your client requests. And if they need a lower cost, you know, you have to kind of deliver. Otherwise, they might go and counter source you. So um, it's a really hard business, but I think it really teaches you, like, one, the value of think, building, like, IP or things that, that are scalable. And then I think, secondly, you know, the, the value of having, like, a strong quality control system from day one. So those are just two things that come to mind. Mm-hmm. And we'll, I'm sure we'll dive a lot deeper into this when we, you know, transition to the topic of italic and how obviously that came to be and everything else. Uh, but I'm, you know, just to take it back just a little bit, uh, when you were at Babson, you know, what was the goal, right? Like, did you want to come out of it with, you know, a job? Did you want to come out of it with, you know, your own business? I mean, why, and, and why'd you even go there? Like out of all the schools in the country, uh, why Babson? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's exactly like Pat mentioned. You know, when I, I was, I, I never got in like the big, you know, Ivy leagues and, and all that, unfortunately. But um, I did, I did try, and uh, and I think uh, when I didn't, Babson was a pretty compelling option. Um, and the number one for entrepreneurship, I mean, they tout that everywhere. In reality, like, what does that actually mean? Like, you can't actually, you know, you can teach it in a classroom, but like, you really gotta, yeah. you kind of gotta do it yourself. Um, to know what it's you can learn all the case study you can go over all the case studies and like learn about all the things but like at the end of the day it's like you kind of have to do it and um a lot of the skills they 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 teach you i think are are useful like from whether it's like from a technical level or like a financial level or whatever it was but um the reason why i went to babson was uh, i knew i wanted to follow kind of my mom's footsteps of of starting a, a company at some point had no idea what it would be in um, just knew that that was like kind of what I wanted to do. And when I didn't get the chance to go to like those, you know, prestigious, you know, schools that would make your mom happy, you know, I was like, okay, well, I got to prove myself another way. And, and I went to, to Babson. Um, and I think the <laughs> first year I realized like, Hey, you can't really learn this in a classroom. You kind of have to like go out on your own. And, um, and especially in, uh, in, in Boston that time, this is like 2013, 2014, I think like a lot of, that was the peak of, um, uh, like the whole college hackathon season where, you know, a lot of these colleges were throwing these hackathons with like big corporate sponsors and they were like a big deal. In reality, looking back, I was like, cool. I can't believe they got like kids to do that. But, yeah. um, but, uh, but I, I think it was really inspiring as a, you know, young adult going into college, like you get to see and speak with like, I, I got in, in a, in a one month span, I, I was like, I'm not trying to name drop it. It's just like Boston had this like really thriving community of like, I think the, you know, Travis from Uber came over and spoke like Evan from, you know, Snapchat wow. back when it was still Snapchat, um, uh, Alexis yeah. from Reddit. And they were all like part of, you know, they came, they came to for campus recruiting, you know, over at Harvard and, and MIT, not, not Babson. I would go into you know Cambridge for that. But, um, but uh, I think that was like a really impactful experience for me. And, and I think ultimately it's like, Oh, this whole technology thing is very compelling. And I think like if you're starting a company in anything today, you might as well try to do it in San Francisco and you might as well try to do it in technology. So, um, 
Yeah. yeah. It sounds like we had a very similar college experience because it was I was in college around the same time and you know doing the same thing, studying entrepreneurship uh, and like you know I kind of remember those days and it kind of felt like it was a big transition from like where we were with like that early like Web 2.0 you know tech revolution to like getting into you know AR VR and all these like Web Web 3.0 type things and it, it was an interesting time and 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 I couldn't agree more in terms of the entrepreneurship thing about you know learning it in school um, you know because you know, it's funny, like I had professors that were like academics in entrepreneurship, right? They had like a PhD, <laughs> like literally like, they had PhDs in entrepreneurship, but had never, ever started a business. Right. And it was interesting, like for just one example, you know, uh, it was a project and, you know, our group projects idea, we had to come up with an idea and like a business plan and everything. And this was 2013 and it was a Bitcoin bank. Like we literally decided let's create a Bitcoin bank. Right. Uh, and I was like a Bitcoin credit card. I was like, it just, you know, and and we took we took the idea to the professor and he was like laughing. He's like, "All right, uh, go and do something real, like ser- like real, right? This is a joke, right?" So, anyways, that was, <laughs> it would have been nice to start that business back then. But uh, what I'm, the reason I say that is because I'm curious, like w- you know, in terms of your experience in your classes, you know, what did you kind of learn or take away as someone who went in wanting to be an entrepreneur? And would you recommend going to college for entrepreneurship or studying entrepreneurship to people who? kind of have that bug early on and, and want to learn it in a more structured environment. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, I think like, um, yeah, I think I, I went to like Hakkasia a couple times and, and, uh, and also I think like one of my, one of the first places I tried to intern was, uh, was Coinbase and, uh, and this place at the time there's like Buttercoin if you remember, but yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah. Hey, you'd probably be retired by now. So sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. It's all no, good. I, 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 I totally, I, I, I agree with you. I think, um, I'm not trying to talk down with Babson. I think there's, it's a, it's a great place. Um, uh, I think I did like make a lot of good friends there and the people like the, the staff and, and, you know, I'm not trying to like bother it up in any word. It's just like, I think it's a great place to have a basically like an undergrad business you know environment if you didn't get into Wharton and um and I think uh for 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 me at least like um there were a number of things that I think I I took away like one um uh, I realized hey uh, I I can't I can't do engineering I can't like I can't do web development I I can't do like you know software engineering so I've got to figure out like what else that is um Babson's in is in this like consortium with Wellesley um which is like, you know, more liberal arts where you could take classes there. And then Olin, which is like the heavily, you know, engineering focused school. And, um, and, you know, when I ever tried to do anything with the Olin kids, it's like, oh, I, I'm so out, outclassed here. So I knew that wasn't for me. And then I think secondly, um, uh, they have this class, I think it was, F, it was called FME, where they basically like have first year kids like come together and start startups. <laughs> and yeah. You can imagine like, oh, great idea on paper. And then in execution, it's like everyone goes on Alibaba and like, you know, it'd be like, I'm going to make a shirt, right. And sell it to all my parents. Um, not that that's a bad thing. Again, I think that's actually very, you know, it's a valuable experience for most people to realize like, Hey, entrepreneurship is not for me. And for like 99.9% of the world, that's the case. Um, and I think like it, you know, it teach a lot of the kids there who go there for the sake of, let's say entrepreneurship. It's really for like family businesses, um, who are set to take over as like a second or third generation owner. Um, and I think it's a great structured environment for them to kind of just like have peers to, to build. Yeah. It's the same as any college. It's like build lifelong relationships right there. Um, right. but I think for the sake of like starting a business, I mean, you don't really see, uh, absent on the, the top of like any, <laughs> you know, uh, founder lists anytime soon. So not again, not that that's a bad thing, but I think yeah, like, I agree with that social component. Like yeah. you just mentioned, that's, that's probably the most important thing. Cause 
you're at least in the same environment as a bunch of other people that are like-minded or think the way you do. And most likely, you know, um, they're probably going to go on and do something, you know, in that, you know, in an entrepreneurial way. Like I, you know, some of my classmates have gone on to build incredible businesses and, um, you know, it's like just cool to come up together. Right. And just like bounce ideas off of each other, or even just like be a resource to each other in whatever path you decide to go in after college. Right. So that's and, kind of, yeah. And Jeremy, I know that you obviously stayed and then ultimately you drop out. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm technically on a leave of absence still. Okay, so you took a leave, <laughs> you took a permanent leave of absence, uh, I assume, uh, or temporary, whatever you want to call it. But you take take a leave of absence. What was the plan? I mean, what even led to you coming to that decision of like, you know what, this isn't what I want to be doing right now. I want to be doing something else. I mean, was there a plan for what that something else was? Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I think, um, I think for a lot of first-time founders, like the excitement around starting a company outweighs the actual company itself. Um, and what I mean by that, the, I, this is very true for me for the first company was uh, I didn't care what industry I was in. I didn't care like what, you know, who I was working with, um, uh, like all the things that like you should really, really care a lot about. Um, I really didn't care about it. I was more like, Hey, I want to start a company and I'm, I'm going to go, go, go until like I do that. And at the time, you know, like all this hustle and built up like, you know, energy that you want to put towards something. And I think like in, in that environment, like you get so tired of going to class. And luckily, you know, Babson was one of the places where they would take like a ton of money. I was you know, the kid in high school that took all those um, AP classes. So I, I had a ton of credits to, to bring over and I could justify to my parents like, hey, let me, you know, give me one semester like to try out something. Um, and I moved to San Francisco, didn't ask for a cent from them, you know, lived like couch to couch and, and ate burritos all day. Um, but that, I think, that semester off really gave me the kind of environment to um, to realize like, hey, it's much. This is a much more conducive environment to starting a company because it's the only thing you focus on, not like your next test or your next paper. Um, not that you can't start a great company like in school. I mean, plenty of people have started way bigger companies than I have, you know, in, in, in school. But I think for me, it's just like a forcing function of, you know, I'm going to force myself to get out. Um, and have one semester to, to prove it to not only myself, but to my parents to, to allow me to kind of like gracefully, you know, exit school. Um, and there wasn't, I wouldn't say there was like a specific day that I realized that, but I think it was just like over the course of a couple months where I realized like, hey, I'm going to be much happier, like not sitting in a classroom. Right. You know, it, it's it's definitely a very ballsy move for, for lack of better words, because I know a lot of people, including myself, you know, I went to undergrad plus grad school so in those seven years probably every other day i had the thought about you know i could be doing something else uh but you know there's always that fear of like well what if you know the grass isn't greener on the other side like what if i'm not going to be happier right what if i am going to be part of that 99.9 percent .9 that fantasizes about being an entrepreneur or going and working at some company and i'm going to hate it and i should have done that instead right there's all these like what ifs that stop people from you know, pursuing anything, not only just entrepreneurship, just pursuing, you know, a love interest or pursuing buying a home or right, whatever the case may be. Right. So why do you think you had that confidence? Right. Um, you know, I, and I'm really digging deep here because I'm sure there's a lot of people that might be in that position, whether they're in school now, whether they're at another job that are listening and they may not have that confidence that you did, but I want them to be able to relate to you perhaps and say, you know what? I'm going to take that leap of faith, like, even if it doesn't work out. Yeah, you know, I think specific to founders, I would, I mean, I have to say this, like, 
honestly speaking, I think 99.9, I, I said this previously, but I feel like most people in the world should not be founders. And there's a very good reason why, which is like, this job is horrible. It's like, you're going to lose hair, like lose sleep. It's not healthy. I could, I know there's a stereotype there, but I think the stereotype is more true than not. Um, uh, and, and I think, but, you know, I, I think for those people who like have it in them, like you said, you know, you, you know, at some point you're going to do this, do this anyways. Um, and I think the question is like, why not today? Right. Or why not like tomorrow? Um, and you can always push that decision off. And there's a lot of societal pressures or, you know, family pressures or, you know, social pressures, like, you know, telling you like why you shouldn't do it. But I think if you have that in your gut telling you like you should, um, I think the question more so that you should be asking yourself is like, yeah, why, why shouldn't you, why, why can't you do that today versus like, why do you have to wait a year? Like, why do you, why do you have to get that promotion? Um, if you have that in you, I think like that's um, a good forcing function to kind of get you to to start, you know, thinking more aggressively or boldly. And yeah. for what it's worth, not everyone has the you know support network or the um, you know uh, 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 the the risk tolerance. Um, you might have a family. You know, you might have like very little. You might be a, have a ton of student debt. Like, thankfully, I didn't. I'm not saying thankfully I didn't have either, but I'm, I'm saying like, you know, I think um, I was in a fortunate situation when you're younger where you can take that leap of faith with a, um, a family that can support you that way. So I was lucky in that regard, but I think, um, I don't know. I feel like if you're going to do it, you're, you're, you're going to do it at some point. And, um, and you know, whatever the next step is uh, probably like that you're kind of setting yourself up as like, Oh, once I do that, I'm going to do like, I'm going to take the leap. Like generally you're right. going to have another step after that. So um, I don't know. It's it's a it's a tough one because again, I still I'm in, I'm in the camp of like, hey, most people should go to college and like get a nine to five because I think that there was a stat where like eighty percent of the American workforce doesn't have a single identifiable passion, and that's okay. Like I think it's you know most people just don't like want that in life, but right. Um, but if you do, you might as well kind of go for it. Right, and you know what? That's 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 a great answer, and 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 the reason why we ask that question and we've asked it several times is because sometimes. You know, not sometimes, all the time. Some every person has a different story, different circumstance, right? It's there's not a one size fits all type of like solution to these questions or these problems or whatever. But I think that as a person, you know yourself, right? You can self assess, and ideally, you're self aware, which I think is a huge, it's a huge skill to be self aware of like your weaknesses, your strengths, your risk tolerance, etc. And then you just kind of take the leap of faith. But you're right, you know. I think the reason why we started the Founder Hour was to learn more about the person, right? Of course, the company as well. And we'll talk about, you know, everything you've done, including uh, Fountain, you know, which you launched after you <laughs> took this leave of absence and not dropped out. But, you know, it also tells people, you know, how difficult it is and how challenging it is. And we want people to understand and, you know, through the stories of others that, yes, it is a very sexy thing if you become successful, right? But even the people that we interview sometimes don't end up becoming uber successful you know there's been several times and several people we've interviewed in the past three and a half years that haven't reached that level and it's okay they'll go on and do other things they'll go on and advise people they'll invest etc so i guess thank you for that answer i thought it was a great answer um what was fountain.com i mean and, and why did you think that this was a great reason to leave school yeah i mean i i really uh fountain's a great company today like it's still going um you know my co-founder and i have exited um and both of us have a great um you know relationship with the ceo who, who we brought in and and also with each other so it's um there's nothing like no i, I didn't leave on like bad terms by any means but i think 
um, uh, the, the, the fountain for those who kind of are listening, it's, it's an enterprise hiring automation platform for large scale workforces around the world. And just saying that out loud, I think if you think as a, you know, like 19 year old kid dropping out, like, I mean, you're not <laughs> dropping out to do that, right? Like you're, you're, that's not what your like whole life is about. It's a great business. Like I think, again, I just want to make that clear. It's a like, great business, great team. But I think, um, the reason why Keith and I started the company, the number one reason wasn't because we had like an excitement around the industry or around each other. Like we had actually just met <laughs> and both of those are like red flags to anyone you know who, who's investing in us um, uh, is, and, and it was really just like, Hey, we want to start a company. And like, we're two ambitious, you know, young guys in the heart of Silicon Valley. And we're like, let's do this. Right. Um, we had met on a, on a Facebook group called hackathon hackers, which is this like huge community of like young, you know, engineering type of guys and, um, and, and, and women as well. And, I think, uh, um, and uh, and I think for for us, like we um, we had really founded it off of the premise of like let's start a company as opposed to like understanding deeply the problem. And frankly speaking, we just got really lucky. Um, we had been in the right place at the right time. We were competing against these two like super super impressive like Stanford MBAs who had started a company around the same time. And I think if I have to be honest, it was just like me giving up like five, 10 years of my life in exchange for beating them out on like raw hustle and the ability to work off of like less sleep. And I, that's it. The first couple of years, it, it's really, you know, it was, it was, it was really kind of straightforward because, you know, it, it really was all about kind of following that path that, that the rest of the industry set for you. But um, I think a couple of years in, if you're, you know, trying to recruit that next person and you're giving the whole spiel around the mission and the vision and values, and ultimately like you don't personally find excitement in that it burns you out really quickly so um i think that's ultimately why i i wanted to kind of work on something i was personally you know very passionate about and excited about and it's all the fuzzy stuff that like as a kid you know you say like you pass it off it's like that doesn't matter but uh but at the end of the day it really did so um so that that was fun and, and still going today i think it's still going strong with a much in much more capable hands frankly than than uh, <laughs> i think we were but um but uh but it was a great kind of jumping point for, for me personally at least yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's something that I've gone through and I've seen so many examples of where, you know, it's you kind of you you have that bug, you want to start a business, you started just to start it, you might see some sort of opportunity, it might not be something you really care about. But hey, why not? You know, like, there's a business here. And that could work. Um, and I think passion, I'm, I'm of the firm belief that passion could be developed. Some people are just passionate about making money. And that's fine, too. Right. But if you really know that, you know, you don't see like a long term future in that you have to understand how much work and effort and time and how much of your life and sacrifice goes into building a successful business that if it's not something that you see yourself in my opinion doing for like at least 10 15 years if it's the case like maybe maybe it's better that you go work somewhere that you do have a little bit of interest in that industry you know earn your stripes meet people gain experience and you know through that throughout that like you mentioned before if you know at some point you'll start a business one day then you're always you know, you have that open mindset of seeing just opportunities if they arise, you're more likely to see opportunities that way than, you know, doing something that you don't even care about, right? Because like you said, when it comes time to hire people, now you're managing people, you're you're in charge of their well-being and making sure that they're paid and everything's good with them and they're happy. And, um, you know, if you raise money, now you have investors to, to answer to and all that kind of stuff just adds more weight that if you didn't even care about the business in the first place, like it's going to be a really tough hole to, to get out of once you're in it, right? So I couldn't I couldn't agree more. But um, I guess talk to us a little bit about your I mean YC experience. Anything like there that stood out that 
would be good to share or was it, you know, was it kind of, you know, what you thought it would be, not what you thought what it, thought it would be? Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> there's a funny trend with YC founders, which is every subsequent year, you kind of look down on the next batch because it's like, oh, it's a little bit bigger. The, the, the partners are a little bit worse, like blah, blah, blah. But I know I think at its core, YC is like a really, really great catalyst for, you know, younger uh, founders or people who like have really know what they're doing to jumpstart um, the, the startup experience. And really like, you know, we could talk about the dinners, we could talk about like the deals, the network, you know, all these things individually, but at, at its core, I think ultimately what it does is like, it, it is a highly intensive, like three month experience where you do, the only thing you focus on is, is this company. Um, and, you know, the only thing you care about is growth and, and getting this month over month. Like everyone wants this, like, you know, J chart at the end of, of, of the experience so that you can present it at demo day. And every it's, it's a pretty conducive experience. But I also think it weeds out like the people who, um, who were in it for the wrong reasons. Like if you thought a startup was like this rosy kind of thing that like you're a product manager at Facebook and now you want to do this thing. And there's a lot of great startups founded by, um, you know, Facebook PMs, but there's also a lot of duds that, you know, I think it was just like PMs that thought it'd be easy and, and just like running a product team. So I think, um, YC is a really cool, uh, I think it's, I think of it as like a spawning pool of just like, you know, interesting ideas. There's a ton of pivots that happen during the batch. You meet a lot of really you know, interesting people. Um, and, uh, and I think now they've, they've scaled it to a point where like, you know, I don't recognize any of the, I don't know any of the companies in there. I don't know any of the partners anymore, but, um, but at, at, at its time, and, and even to this day, I, I hear, you know, great things. Um, I think if you're a second time founder or a third time founder, it's like, Hey, you know, the value add might be not as, as strong because originally you would do it for the network or, you know, right. um, or the demo day, but I still think it produces like amazing companies, if not better, you know, year over year. So I only have good things to say. Um, you know, your mileage yeah. may vary. So it's like the undergrad experience for starting a startup as opposed to like the, the yeah, right. early stage stuff. Yeah. Right. So Jamie, I am curious a little bit about Fountain before we, you know, go into what you're doing now. But you guys, you know, and I don't know if this happened during your time or after your time, but a lot of these big companies that a lot of people know about, whether it's Uber, Airbnb, Target, Safeway, just to name a few, they all use this platform, right? How, what made it, I mean, what does this platform really do for these businesses? And why do you think, you know, beyond the fact that you said that you worked really, 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 really hard and worked longer <laughs> than everybody else, why do you think that this product worked and obviously works uh, now? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the true answer is we were in the right place at the right time. Um, uh, and uh, so the original idea was like, hey, applicant tracking systems are not like they're most of them were built the, the the good ones the new ones like the levers and the greenhouses of the world they were built um uh, at a time when like and, and for companies that that serve knowledge workers so engineers designers you know marketers whatever it is um and uh and i was working at a company called ship at the time shyp that was like an on-demand shipping service and uh and we had to hire all these couriers which our ATS, you know, lever at the time, like clearly was not built for. So um, I think when Keith and I got together, he was already working on this. So it's not like I'm coming up with the idea, but I think we, we jammed on, on this idea uh, quite a bit. And the idea was like, okay, what if we built uh, basically a customized, like verticalized, um, you know, applicant tracking system for large scale workforces that don't care so much about like, 
you know, what design program you know how to do in how many years, but more so like, hey, do you fill these roles with the right people like as efficiently as possible? Um, automated background checks, automated document signing, you know, automated phone screening, uh, automated phone scheduling, you know, so on and so forth. Um, you know, text messages, um, which was much more efficient than email. Um, and uh, and our initial client base was all these on-demand companies. So at the time, it's like the heyday of the Uber for X's, where everyone was starting some version of that. Um, and uh, and we had sold into a lot of those clients. And in that case, like when you're selling to startups, the only thing that really matters is hustle. In my opinion, you just like got to be persistent. You know, build. They want this. Oh, let's go build it tonight. Um, and that was the first like two years, and it was a it was really kind of thrilling because we um uh it, it, you know. <laughs> I would like have the night shift and Keith would have the day shift. I would do sales to our European customers and like tell our engineering, our contractor engineering at the time, like in the morning, like, oh, here's what they wanted. And then I'd go to sleep and then they'd build it. And then I'd wake up at night and be like, oh, it's done. So it was, it was this kind of some, like re- rinse and repeat cycle of, of building a SaaS tool for this like little niche market. And then we just got, when I say we got lucky, we got lucky in the sense that like, hey, this use case extended to a lot of companies outside of on-demand companies. So like the targets and the safe ways and, and so on and so forth. So um, we were able to cross that chasm, which is you know what everyone says SaaS companies yeah. need to do into enterprise. You mentioned a couple of years in having that realization of like, well, maybe I'm not as passionate about this as I thought I was and, and having that thought. But I, I think I saw that you were, you know, you were at Fountain for about seven years. Um, so you were there for a little while, you know, after that, um, what ended up happening? Like, why did you end up leaving or, or did you, ha- did you sell? Like, were you trying to sell? Like what kind of talk, walk us through sort of the end of the journey there, um, before we get into to italic. Yeah. So f- I, I was at Fountain for, um, almost, uh, four years. And, um, and I, I just have that, you know, when, it, when you start a company, you got to keep that founder title forever. It's a, it's a badge of honor. Yeah. Um, so I was, a, I was, a, I've been a founder for seven years, which is crazy, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, especially since, you know, I, I feel like I was a kid when I, when I started it, but, um, but yeah, I, I think like, um, uh, for fountain, the, the reason ultimately that I think like it didn't work out for me was, uh, it really came down to what we were building and what I was excited about. Um, you know, for me, B2B SaaS is a pretty grueling, you know, place to be if you're not into it. Um, you know, you got to be on the phone all the time. You got to be like enterprise, you know, hard, you know, the sales type of person, like who's super outgoing and like, likes that. That's not me. So, um, I think I had that realization like one year in, but I, I grinded it out for, you know, another, another couple of years, um, up to the point where I was like, okay, you know, we have the team. I'm not a single point of failure anymore. So the ball doesn't stop with me. And, uh, and if I leave, like things aren't going to kind of, shut down and um i was able to kind of like part ways um really on on good terms with with both the board whom you know i still chat with all the time as well as my co-founder so you're like okay four years in um just for reference what is that around 2018 yeah that's that's right and by the way i'll just add one thing to that as well i think i was very lucky in that regard if you were a solo founder or if i was the ceo you know I probably wouldn't have had that opportunity, but because my my co-founder and I were you know pretty close by then, and because I wasn't the CEO, I was able to kind of be in a very fortunate position where I had that option to um, to gracefully exit. But if you know if that wasn't the case, that would have been much harder. But yeah, I was there until mm-hmm. um, uh, basically I think my last day was um, formally like January first, twenty eighteen, and then I had a three month, technically a three month break before Italic, and then. Um, 
and then we were off to the races. So a very short kind of was that an intentional uh, break, or or did you kind of leave not really knowing what you were going to do, and you know, how, you know, like uh, what was kind of that period look looking like? No, I, I think um, for me, you know, I I, I didn't I, I left um, around the same time as like when I realized like, hey, this is really what I want to be doing, and I, I think like over the past year, I had spent a lot of time with my my family and my parents, um, uh, just like kind of rehashing out ideas and i think like the 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 idea for italic really came from you know manufacturing again where um where it's a again a very low margin very competitive business and ultimately the longer you work in the business the more you kind of wonder like hey i'm producing finished products for someone else and they sell it you know they buy it from me for this price and then they'll sell it for five ten times what i sold it to them for and that inherently like sucks as a as a as a business right because you're losing out on all of the upside. Um, and I think we just got to thinking of like, okay, well, what if there are other ways to, um, you know, change the supply chain? Like there were a lot of direct to consumer brands that had claimed these, like, I don't want to jump ahead. I don't know yeah. if you had other questions on that, but. Um, well, you know, you're, you're never jumping the gun because we're having a conversation here. So, you know, you're, you're, you're the, you're the guest. You, <laughs> in, 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 on, this show, on this show, you, your conversation and your answers help us lead the conversation. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I am curious, you know, obviously we talked a lot about the manufacturing stuff early on with your mom and your dad being in the uh, more so, I believe you said automotive, uh, mm-hmm. automotive uh, manufacturing business. Uh, obviously, the SaaS stuff, nothing to do with manufacturing. Um, did you always in the back of your mind have that question that you just talked about of why are these manufacturers missing out on, you know, perhaps more profit or how can that be different? Was that always on your mind? You know, was that something your parents perhaps talked about when you were a kid or was it just like during that three month period, you're just kind of, you know, in this mode of like, I'm not really, really working super hard. And now these ideas are coming up. So talk to us about how that initial idea was like even birthed. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like, when you, you <laughs> I feel like founders have this like interesting journey where like day one you know nothing but you have a lot of confidence and then like there's uh you know you learn a lot and you're like oh you fall on your face a ton of times and then like come to a point I think like in my case like three or four years where like I I'm on top of the world I know how to do this thing it was easy right like I've been doing it for a while and then you have that like deep confidence when and you apply it to everything you go to so let you know you see this all the time right like you look at healthcare like oh I could solve that like you look at a uh, you know, supply chain. I could do that. Um, I think for me, I kind of went in with that uh, like very clear-eyed naivete and, and confidence into manufacturing with my family business. Where I was like, "Hey, what you're doing is dumb. Like, you got to drop everything and like, you know, like let's 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 tech let's let's tech this thing and and you know um, a- apply like a YC mentality." And obviously, looking back, it's like a very you know stupid thing to to do. But um, uh, I think with uh, with with my family, at least I was like, that was a lot of the conversation. It was like, well, why why are why like why can't you raise your margins? Well, like there's competitive pricing pressure, and there's a lot of you know manufacturers in any single category. Well, like why don't you try to sell to the customer? Because um, you know there's no like rails for distribution for a manufacturer, right? Like that's why retailers and brands exist as kind of intermediaries of trust right. between you know a manufacturer and a customer, like. Yeah, well, why can't you try to like develop IP like because we get orders and revenue from clients who place that with us, not like R and D that we develop on ourselves. And you know, there's a lot of these things that I think you you learn. Um, and I think for me, it was just like a 
Um, where we kind of came down to it was like, well, the insight was whoever owns the inventory, whoever like buys and owns the inventory owns the upside because their job then is to pass it on to some other you know person. And a long time ago, that would be like the manufacturer sells it to a distributor who kind of places it in a retailer who, or sorry, sells it to a brand who sells it to a distributor who sells it to a retailer. And then that sells it to a customer. And like the retailer used to do the job of the distribution and the customer acquisition. So used to, they used to really have the pricing power. Um, and then with the internet, I think like between t- 2005, really started with like Bonobos in 2008. But like, um, I think a lot of people started talking about like cutting out the middleman with the retailer where, you know, brands would no longer have to, you know, do uh, retail distribution deals and instead they could acquire them directly. So you could cut the price down a little bit because you're taking away the retailer. Um, but at the end of the day, what I realized was like, hey, it doesn't, and we talked to a lot of manufacturers, it doesn't matter if, you know, your client is a cutting edge direct to consumer brand or a like 500 year old you know legacy brand to them you're one in the same you're just like all i care about is getting your order making my margin and passing like filling it and then moving on to the next one um and occupying yeah. production capacity so um, i think that's where kind of the idea for itel came around obviously this whole model of manufacturing and distribution and retail and all that stuff has been around for so long and obviously we've changed seen that changing more and more in the last you know 10 years with e-commerce and you know kind of again like you said cutting out the middleman it's like every every middleman is like being cut out these days in every industry but um in 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 this case like what do you think happened in 2018 or like why had it why don't you think it had happened by that time and why was that kind of the you know the right time that you felt like you know, to launch this thing? Like, was there like a convergence in like certain things that kind of led to that point? Or like, why hadn't nobody done this before? Yeah, you know, I'd say it's probably, I'd say two things on this. Like one is, honestly speaking, I don't think if we, if whether it was me or someone else, like I think someone who like deeply understands manufacturing and tech has to will this thing into existence. Because otherwise the most natural option here is like, be a brand and your incentive is to buy inventory for the lowest possible cost or decreasing costs every single year and sell it for the highest possible price point that your customer is willing to you know, pay for it um, and, and rinse and repeat. And, and I think like it takes a lot of, first of all, it takes a lot of money, but also it takes a lot of discipline to, um, to essentially lower your prices and your own take rate to, um, to satisfy both like acquiring manufacturers as merchants and also, you know, um, uh, convincing customers like, hey, this brand is trustworthy, even though there isn't like a, a brand, a traditional brand per se around it. So um, I think it for, for Italic, like it, it, the conversion, I wouldn't say there's like a single point in time where things converge, but I think like a, the second point I was going to make is um, for us, like the groundwork had been laid um, uh, actually, I think like maybe three years prior. Um, in my opinion, like the, the e-com uh, and commerce landscape today in, in the States and uh, most of the West actually looks a lot like where China did in like 2014 to 2015. Um, and I had obviously the advantage of like speaking Chinese and, and, um, you know, visiting every year as a, as a kid. And, and, um, and, uh, and I think like uh, at that time, you know, they had really centralized players like we do um, in, in, uh, in JD and, um, and Tmall and, um, which are, you know, their equivalents of like our Ebays and, and, um, and Amazon's, but like the next wave from basically 2015 onwards, you had like, uh, companies like Pinduoduo, um, uh, which pioneered group buying, but more importantly, in my opinion, pioneered a lot of like more, um, middle-class, uh, consumers purchasing straight from manufacturers as opposed to through retailer brands. Um, uh, you had, um, uh, uh, companies like, um, Xiaomi, which, 
um, not only like had significant pricing power, but also like introduced marketplaces where in, 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 a, in the China market, which is like deeply brand conscious and brand loyal, they were still able to sell like non-branded products straight from the same manufacturers, like high-end brands to Chinese consumers, which like really care about that logo. Um, uh, or I, I'm generalizing, of course, but like, you know, it's a pretty brand loyal market. Um, and I think for, for me, it's like, okay, well, there seems to be something there. Um, and, uh, and of course, like, I could point to e-commerce and say, like, hey, that's that number is rising every year, you know, year over year quite quickly. Um, I think this this is a great time to start approaching manufacturers. And I mean, I, I I probably got the timing off by maybe like a year or two. You know, manufacturers when we first kind of approached, it was still like relatively skeptical. Hey, you know, if you've been doing something a certain way for like 40, 50 years, like you're very skeptical of like the next tech kid who wants to like pitch you this, you know, amazing solution. But I think we we eventually like the first year I met with over 150 in-person uh, manufacturers in Italy and China and the U.S., you know, a couple other countries, and um, and only two said like, "Hey, we'll we'll, we'll do something with you." Um, and I think that's like what hustle teaches you. But uh, and Jeremy, ahead. what was your pitch? What was your pitch to those people? Yeah, so the pitch really actually hasn't changed over the years. Though. What what I tell like is, um, I guess to take yeah to take one step back, what I tell like is yeah. today is. Uh, for consumers, we essentially offer over a thousand products that we design and develop ourselves, ranging from uh, cookware to apparel to accessories to home goods to bedding. Uh, even nowadays, we have like weight sets and, and ski goggles, so active products. Um, and, our, and our spin on it is that we, you know, went like I said and found the, the same manufacturers as these high-end brands, um, but we don't monetize the products very much. We operate uh, what is essentially like a very, very heavily managed marketplace underneath the hood. Um, so that we can afford to sell these products at a 50 to 80% discount to what comparable direct consumer brands charge. Um, and also even more so compared to traditional incumbent brands. But for the manufacturer, what we provide is uh, we, I call it private label in a box. We essentially provide a turnkey service where um, we empower, our end goal is to essentially empower the manufacturer to become a merchant of their own um, and thereby take Kind of going back to the inventory side, like take inventory and and um, uh, and thereby take uh, uh, take part in the upside of the margin, um, and specifically by turnkey, I mean we do the payment orchestration, we have the operational network of partner warehousing, we do the um, we have our technology portal, um, uh, we do the cross border you know facilitation and logistics and the fulfillment. Uh, and we do the payment processing, the um, customer for end to end, so that to a customer, um, you're getting the same level of quality and experience as if you you know were to purchase from a brand or a retailer. But for the manufacturer, it's a it's a means to access a global market of consumers. So the pitch to a to the manufacturer really is like, hey, for the first time in your manufacturing history, like you can own your own inventory and sell it to an end customer without having to do all of that stuff that I just named, um, you know, uh, 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 by yourself. And, um, and I think the appeal was like, Hey, this is the first time, what I'm really saying is like, this is the first time that like you as a company can own your own destiny and not be like subject to the whims of your clients. Um, and I think that message is very appealing to second generation, third generation, like family owners, because a lot of these manufacturers are you know, family yeah. owned. And I think now the ownership is like younger and younger and they see the rise of like e-com. So they get it. I think that was the, um, uh, we, that, that was the pitch. We talked about the convergence of things. And I think it seems like something changed where on both sides of the sort of the, the coin, where on the manufacturer side, like the, these things in the manufacturer retailer relationship or brand relationship, 
um, a lot of, you know, a lot of that was like under wraps or like under behind closed doors um, for so long where, you know, they, you know, they didn't want to share who they're working with or what kind of brands because there's a lot of leverage play there, right? Like they don't want to lose that. Um, but now obviously like if you go on your website, you can see like, you know, this item, you know, is the same manufacturer as these brands and they're like really big brands like the aloes and the Lululemons of the world. Um, and then on the flip side, you know, it's a big change in consumer behavior because, you know, you mentioned that kind of the logo or like the stamp of approval that a brand puts on a piece of, you know, clothing, for example, if we're talking about clothing, um, where people are kind of buying for that. It's like a status thing too, right? And um, trust. And trust. Status and trust. Exactly. Um, but obviously something changed there too, where it's like, well, if I can, if I can feel the quality, you know, obviously I can return if I don't like it and it feels good and I like the way it feels on me and, you know, I trust this company, um, then I, yeah, absolutely. I'm willing to pay less, even if there's no logo on that. Something changed there, obviously. So, so is there, is there anything more to that? Like, do you have, do you have anything else to add to that? I guess. Yeah. Asian? yeah. I mean, you, you actually, you put it in a really, really good way, actually. So, so, um, uh, I, I think the, the, the way I frame it is like, you know, there's all these studies and, and, you know, uh, consumer reports, if you will, that say like, Hey, consumers in the West are like more like they are the least loyal to brands than they have been in like the past however many decades. And I think like, yeah, that objectively speaking is true, but I think like the power of the brand is actually stronger today than it ever was before. And that's partially because I think there's a lot of consumer awareness and education that's happened, you know, talking about like fashion, for example, all these Reddit sub, uh, you know, subreddits for, for men to learn about, you know, apparel for the first time. Like, that's pretty cool. Um, there's all these blogs that like talk about the quality. You know, I think like consumers have, um, uh, I don't think it's like necessarily brand disloyalty. I think it's more, um, Hey, they have so many more options to purchase today and so much more, um, you know, education around like what they should be looking for in terms of quality and design that um that brands have a harder time today to kind of stay relevant um when it's uh, when it comes to like you know to give you a better example like handbags um are probably the best example of this where you know if you wanted a quality handbag previously the only way you would like get that is by buying from like a luxury brand um whose markups are like literally 10x plus uh, like maybe 20x sometimes and um and the reason was like, hey, that's the only, if you wanted a quality bag, like there is literally no other way to, to get one um, than to buy from one of these brands. And of course it comes with the status symbol of like, hey, you have like a little big logo on um, uh, on one of these bags. But at the end of the day, if you want a nice thing that'll last a while, um, you know, you're going to buy from one of those brands because you don't have another, another option. And then I think with direct to consumer, I think it's introduced a whole new class of consumers where you know they care about like having nice things, um, uh, uh, and um, and I think they care about like design as well. But they don't they, like pricing is a really big factor in the purchase decision that um, I think most brands kind of like skirt around. You know, I, I really did love the whole like cutting out the middleman narrative back in like 2008 to so 2012 was the heyday. Um, but I feel like it's like changed a lot over the years where nowadays everyone says it and it's like lost its meaning a lot. But I think at the end of the day, that's what like internet commerce was for is like right. you're getting cheaper quality, cheaper products at a higher quality, like shipped to your door. And that's like really powerful. Um, right. So I think for Italic, like our kind of vision is to go back to that, um, uh, that, that original vision of like online commerce being um, you know, high, higher quality products um, uh, at the lowest possible price point. We, our mission is to essentially provide quality goods and services at the lowest um, for our members uh, at the lowest prices on the internet. And that's like a very tangible thing that we strive for every day. So 
I, I could talk on and on about the consumer side. I think the other thing I might yeah. add lastly is just that I think um, for the people who buy um, you know, branded merchandise, uh, if you're going to buy, like, let's say a Gucci bag versus an italic bag, you're always going to buy the Gucci bag. There's no competition, right? Like you want that logo and you want that status. And um, I think by all means, like we support that. But I think for the same Gucci customer who cares about that logo on the handbag, they might not care about having like all clad, you know, cookware or frette, you know, uh, bedding. And in those cases, like the italic option where it's like heavily, you know, the quality is like comparable and the the, the price point is substantially lower. That's a very strong sell. But then to someone who's like a home chef um, who really, really cares about like Le Creuset, you know, Dutch ovens or whatever it is, they might not care about having a big, you know, logo on their handbag. So they might buy from Kiana, Italic, Everlane, whatever it is. So um, I think for, for me, like I, I really kind of structure it in a standpoint of like, for our customers, we really see them. We really see them as having like your emotional purchases. You're going to buy from brands, and then your rational, like logical, you know, purchase decisions. Um, uh, it's going to be from you know value players like Italic. Um, yeah. And that's and for that latter group, it's like it's almost like taking away from fast fashion and 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 all the crap that comes along with that, right? Because if it's a price thing, well, you're paying you know a much more like lower price for a high quality item that is probably going to last much longer than paying like a slightly less for a really really cheap quality item that has been the case for the last like 15 20 years right so that's at least like a good piece from like an you know just economy or society standpoint of well if you're in that category um that's a a bit much better option you know from for longer lasting clothing if you don't want to pay the high price of going to like a gucci or louis vuitton or or what have you right um so yeah, when, yeah when i think about italic when i first you know learned about the company you know it got me thinking about when there was this company called, I think Brandless that mm-hmm. came out and they did like, was it food? Yeah. Or it was like I different like food items. CPG, and whatever. Yeah. Right. And you know, I thought it was an interesting concept, but I thought to myself, you know, I don't know, you know, when it comes to my food, I, I want to know who's making it right. Like I, I trust for some reason, PepsiCo and Coca-Cola, you know, and you know, their processes, for example, and then I thought to myself, okay, italic, it's a little different. I'm not ingesting any of this food or, or any of these products. Uh, so like you said, that threshold thing early on with your parents and the automotive, I frankly care less, you know, if <laughs> right. you know, like there's a chip in the spoon, right? It doesn't matter to me. But more than that, I think what italic has been able to do well is even if the products themselves don't have a brand that you can trust, they trust the platform that those products are on, right? If there was a product at Whole Foods, for example, that I've never heard of in my life, I'm going to bet that that product must be okay because the quality control that Whole Foods typically does and the processes they have are probably better than random market ABC like down the street, you know, just for example. So, you know, what have been your learnings, you know, having done now Italic for almost three years from the consumer side of it, what are some of the stories or the feedback that you've heard back in terms of people buying products because they trust Italic, not necessarily because of the product itself? Yeah. So what we found is in our in our um, in, in our customer purchasing decisions, really what they care about is quality, design, and price point. And um, and I think in in the the first two, they're actually relatively speaking easy for a brand or you know company to control, right? Like you're designing it, you're developing it. Uh, ultimately, what what quality comes down to, in my opinion, is is co- cost of goods sold. So, you know, if we have similar cogs to 
you know, these high-end brands, generally speaking, like we're using similar levels of materials, similar craftsmanship, you know, so on and so forth. Um, design is obviously much more subjective, but in our case, we we try to do everything in house as much as possible. And um, and when when we can, like we try to go for evergreen styles that we believe will be popular today as well as five years from now. And um, and I think the the way we frame it is like Italic is not like a sexy brand that'll be hot for five years and then gone for for you know the next five. Uh, we really want to be building products that people would love to kind of wear today or use today as well as like later on in their life. Um, and I think lastly on price point, it's it's um, you know I think like price is the thing that like no one likes to talk about or or kind of think of. Uh, 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 like no one likes to feel like they're buying the cheap option, um, and I think that's what the issue. Like for what it's worth, I feel like Brandless was um, like they 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 were on the right track. I think like yeah. the, the business model um, you know, just necessitated massive growth, um, and I think that's where you can kind of get into issues. Um, also, the the product assortment uh, was started from a, a low ticket, low quality. You know, assortment and they wanted to go upstream from that whereas i think for italic we're going you know upstream and if we set the precedent like you you can trust this as a quality source you can trust us if we go downstream as well so um right. i think brandless could have had a you know and they're still around i mean some uh utah company bought them and, and now they're operating again so um i think I, I think they're still onto something but um yeah i think ultimately for for us what we when we think about brand it's really in the concept of the flywheel where um the more um, members we have, the more leverage we have to acquire, you know, manufacturers right. as merchants. The more manufacturers we have, the more um, products we can offer, and ultimately, the more products we offer. And every single one of these, we have to deliver like consistently to that brand promise, which is this is a high quality product at a un- un- truly unbeatable price point because we're not basically making money on most of them. Um, to a customer that's like, okay, I I'm going to trust Italic more and more because I had a good experience with the candles right. and the bedding and the towels right. and so on and so forth. So, so Jeremy, um, are, is is Italic making money from the membership model? I mean, where 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 are you making money? At the end of the day, obviously, you're running a business, and sure, mm-hmm. you know, you want to fulfill the mission of getting great, you know, uh, price, you know, conscious. Let's call it products to the consumers. Meanwhile, obviously, you know ideally making more wealth for the manufacturers, which in my opinion are truly the backbone of, you know, of the country of the world, right? Like without somebody making stuff, it doesn't matter if how many sellers there are. So how is Italic, you know, monetizing? Yeah, we, we monetize through two ways. One is uh, through our, our, um, our membership. So, Today, oh, 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 sorry. I was supposed to do this a long time ago, but my team made a small code, actually. I think it's, um, I think it's italic.com slash founder hour, and I think that gets you like 30% or something. Oh, Anyways, um, we'll, in case we'll, you, we'll uh, throw it in the description. Okay, we'll say it in the intro. Yeah. People will know Amazing. about it. That's a sweet deal. Thank you. Yeah, no, of course. I, I, I should have brought that up earlier. Um, but yeah, we, we make money through the membership, which is basically a pure you know software um, uh, uh, services, great margins, and then um, we also offer what we call like merchant services. So you know we we uh, provide fulfillment, we provide support, we provide all these things that are essentially what brands do, but we turn them into services, and you know we charge back that um, those fees to our our, our merchants. So um, so it's really if you think about it, it's just like it's a uh, it's a marketplace model plus right. the subscription. Um, and oh, that I way I think it. we can, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's funny. I read somewhere and you called Italic the modern everything store, right? Which yeah. obviously when you hear everything store, the first thing that pops to your head is Amazon. 
because that's what they are and that's what Bezos always wanted them to be. Um, you know, I, I'm, again, I don't want to assume here, but is Italic eventually and is your goal to compete with Amazon? Um, yeah, I would say so. I think, uh, I think, I mean, Hey, there are not many ways to compete against Amazon these days. Right? They're, they're very, very good at what they do. Everyone knows that anyone, anyone who's ever tried to compete with them, I think has, has obviously, you know, not, they don't always lose, but I think it's not easy. So, right. um, the way we, we, we approach it is like, look, um, we believe, I mean, if you, this is great. If you zoom back like more than a hundred years ago, the first like true catalog, was Sears, and then um, the first like yeah. superstore after that was Walmart. Sears Roebuck, right? That's or right. Robux. Sears Roebuck, yeah, exactly. Um, and Tiffany was around even before then, as as not as a jewelry kind of brand, but as a catalog. Um, then it was Walmart, uh, uh, and then Costco came around like 20, 30 years after. Um, and then Amazon really is what Costco and Walmart do offline, but but online. And I think they digitized the, the experience the best possible way. Um, I think the the next possible um, kind of consumer shift in behavior is like um, trusting online brands, which you already see with all these direct to consumer brands, but being able to purchase everything, not just like the nice to have. I mean, the 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 framing I have is like we are today Uber Black, and we want to get to Uber X, where right. even our our products today, like they're still relatively speaking pretty expensive for most you know middle class Americans. Um, we have a long ways to to go on on improving that, but. I think for um, uh, for our vision, it's like, yeah, we, we want to compete on as many categories as possible. I mean, we have all sorts of uh, things planned and also all sorts of manufacturers reaching out. And we our job is to screen through um, uh, those categories and, and manufacturers right. and find the best possible few for each. Um, and yeah, I think that's the end goal. I mean, hey, we're years yeah. away. So we'll... No, I think, I think, you know, Jeremy, I think it's a great goal. And the reason I asked was because Pat and I are always following, you know, everything happening in technology startups. I mean, the podcast really helps us kind of stay up to date with everything. And we're, and we're so happy that we got to talk to you early on because I hope that in the next 10 to 20 years, you do become Jeff Bezos and, uh, <laughs> and even, even wealthier and more influential than him. And the three of us will be friends. Uh, but even beyond that, even beyond that, cause I think that that's secondary, you know, when I, again, coming back to my dad's manufacturing business, I always remember asking him when I was a kid, like, dad, you know, you're doing all this great work. Like, why aren't you just selling it yourself? Right. Like, why aren't you the brand? You know, like, and then as I grew older and understood marketing and branding and, you know, sales, I was like, dad, why don't I sell it for you? And, you know, we're, me and Pat are both Armenian. So our families come from, you know, we have an Armenian background, you know, he's a one man show. He's manufacturing all by himself. You know, he's, he has to scale the business, which means he has to bring on more people. If he's doing it himself, he has to pay for marketing and advertising and this and that and have to go get distribution. And so it becomes like this time suck. And it goes from having multiple customers that he does work for to just himself. But it's awesome to see a tool like Italic, a service like Italic, that could help essentially these folks do both, right? Service their existing customers and then also have another way of essentially making money. Do you foresee like Amazon has done with, you know, their third party sellers eventually where people can literally go on Italic, sign up and say, you know what, this is what we manufacture. We're a manufacturing company. Obviously you guys are the QC on your end, making sure that their, you know, standards are up with Italic and then they sell on their own. They sell on your platform. They get the money. You guys handle distribution for them in your warehouses, et cetera. Is that, is that what the vision is for Italic? 
Yeah, I mean the 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 vision really is is to empower. It's two sided, but it's it's to empower manufacturers to become merchants. Um, and our job is to make that as seamless and and turnkey as possible, um, in a fair way where they can you know make money for themselves. And then I think the the the, the consumer side is like we want to provide you know quality goods um, uh, and services for the lowest prices on the internet. And that's um that's really the, the it's, it's I mean. You can apply that in many different ways, but I think in in, in that example, like the the goal would be to have the services um, uh, set up so that like you know you you and and, and your, your your dad could uh, essentially get up and running, um, and we do all of like we do everything um, uh, end to end, um, and all you have to worry about is just like okay, um, here are my here are my products, here are my sell through. Um, I have a category manager for for let's say jewelry that will help me suggest like things that um, uh, they think like the market will respond well to. Um, I can look at customer data on a you know anonymized benchmark system. Like there's a lot of things that I think we can provide yeah. as a software toolkit, but also in the physical world as well, where we can provide you know, italic what we call fulfilled by italic FBI, <laughs> where um, where you, know, you can send your <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's I'd, we'd love to get there, um, uh, but obviously, like I mean, hey, Amazon's what more than it's like thirty years old now, so we got a long ways to go. Yeah, and and Amazon is, I mean, they've gone from being just like the everything store to like just owning every. I mean, like I work in real right. estate, and they own like the most real estate at this point, you know, in the if not in the world, but in the country. And so I think that they again. That's you, not to you say either, Italian you either die a villain or live long enough to <laughs> yeah, fucking right. own real estate. I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, look, <laughs> it's, it's not to say it's not to say that a company like Amazon can't go down. A, it's funny because I was thinking about this yesterday with this whole like David Dobrik stuff of like how fast like somebody like that can rise and how fast they can fall. And I'm not saying Amazon's going to fall fast, but you can't predict you know what happens to companies and what and 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 where innovation from other companies takes them and. I mean, who knows? I mean, I think what you've done with Italic is obviously phenomenal, and this is just like the early stages. I guess when you're not, what what, what do you do when you're not doing Italic? Because you're still a young dude, you know. Like, you know, what, yeah. do you are you exclusively just working on Italic these days? I mean, look, I I know founders are supposed to have like a good like, oh, I take care of myself and I have routines and have. I mean, I, I try, but realistically speaking, like, no. I mean. My, how I'm many hours a day are you on Twitter and Clubhouse? Zero. I I I, I deleted Perfect. Twitter. That's what I like to hear. <laughs> Clubhouse. I I was fun early on, but I don't know. It's uh, I I, I really I, it's hard to balance. It's hard to balance like life and 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 I think like startups. So, um, but yeah. you know how it is. It's it's kind of what you sign up for, and that's why I genuinely believe like most people should not be founders uh, or even <laughs> yeah. kind of think about it. So. You you mm-hmm. also you I think I read that you you and your uh, is it your girlfriend that mm-hmm. uh, you guys have another company Not Pot What's that all about Yeah, yeah. Not Pot So we started Not Pot um, uh, actually while I think I was still at Fountain and um, and at the time it was like Hey uh, uh, would love to kind of help her kind of build a business of her own um, and, I mean that's my that's what I knew well so that's like my way of showing love in a way where um, uh, and at the time we we I'll had um, you build the business Just yeah, love right. Right. So, so we, uh, we were selling like coconut butters with like different interesting ingredients mixed in at the time. And, um, and one of those ingredients was like, this is back in 2016, 2017. That was like CBD was still like pretty, pretty great area. 
Um, and uh, we started uh, selling like chocolates um, with that ingredient mix in and it kind of like exploded. So um, so we turned that into a business um, called NotPod. And today it's like a, it's a really, really cool, like very, it's the opposite of Italic in every way. It's bootstrap deep, like it's deeply brand heavy. For like three, four years now, we've, we've every month we like donate money to pay for someone's bail, like depending on the bail program. Like we've been doing it for a long time, but um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to balance everything. That's for sure. But I mean, for me, like Italic is, is, is quite intensive. That's yeah. that's awesome. Well, Jeremy, this has been one of those conversations where I feel like if we don't stop it now, we're going to go on for hours. And <laughs> it's been such a blast, you know, just kind of hearing your journey, but also what you're doing with Italic. You know, it's so innovative and so awesome. And like I said, we're, we're both huge fans. And thanks again for that code. We'll, we'll share it with our listeners and, um, you know, hopefully more people can check it out and see the awesome stuff you guys are doing. But uh, yeah, all the best to you. You know, we'll, we'll be following your journey and rooting for you. And uh, hopefully we can meet in person uh, someday soon. But this has been great. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much uh, for, for having me. I really enjoyed the, the conversation. And, um, and yeah, thanks for, you know, taking the time. Thanks, Jeremy.